Well, if we're starting early, that means I can go longer, right? Um, no, I already go long enough. I set an alarm, I promise. Uh, good to see you all. Um, it's good to be preaching here on a Friday night. It's been a while since I've been able to do that for you guys, just because of my own schedule and, and busyness and whatnot. So I'm really glad to open up the Word of God with you guys uh, this evening. And uh, actually, for the remainder of our time in the book of Ruth, uh, we'll be walking through that together. So uh, really grateful for that, really excited. This is a fun book. Um, and uh, yeah, with that, we're going to read the, the text in the sermon. So um, we'll just begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for your kind provision for us. Lord, you show us your mercy every morning. And uh, it is because of, of your, your kindness, because of your, your providence in our lives, we are able to trust you in everything that we do. Even when things go awry, we know that we can trust you. Uh, even when we can't see what's happening next, there's a settled confidence, even though there might be moments of panic, that we can have because we know that you are in control and that you're actively doing something. As we study your word tonight, help us to see that and help us to not just hear that, to be reminded of that, but to actually believe it. So we pray that you would honor yourself as we study your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a culture that loves stories, right? Stories that have high drama are of, particularly, of particular interest to us. It doesn't matter if that drama comes from relationships, intrigue, suspense. All we want is a good story, right? Nobody wants to go watch a movie and waste their time and their hard-earned money because... All there were was nice explosions, but the story was garbage, right? We want a good story. We want a good story. And, you know, the majority of our uh, favorite stories, as many of you who signed up for Disney Plus this week uh, know, are fictional, right? They're always fictional. How many of us wish that we could be like some of our favorite heroes and heroines, right? whisk out of the mundane into a future that parallels what we've read or seen. And I personally dreamed of receiving superpowers or becoming a Jedi, just, you know, hiking. And it's like, oh, whoa, a lightsaber. I get to be a Jedi, right? Um, that's, that's what I personally wanted. Um, it'd be really cool to be able to use the force to move things around, to push people away, to jump really high. Probably would have had a longer basketball career if that was the case, right? Um, and, and, you know, when we want to have these things, it's not like our lives are terrible. Right? I, I wasn't like Harry Potter where my, my parents were awful to me and I lived in a cupboard and I just wanted escape into a whole new world that just existed right around the corner. It just would have been cool. It just would have been really cool to have abilities, abilities that allow for me to make an impact, right? To be, to be different. And as you know, many of our stories, our favorite stories, whether they be fairy tales, comics, television shows, movies, they only provide a temporary reprieve from our lives, right? Um, they just, they're a temporary distraction, they won't become realities. No one is going to come up to you and say, you're a wizard, Harry. All right? And no one is going to tell you that, uh, that you are a prince or a princess. No one's going to tell you that. You're not going to get bit by a radioactive spider. You're not going to survive a chemical explosion or come into contact with a strange foreign object that grants you superpowers. And you're not, in your deepest distress, going to realize that you have a fairy godmother materialize out of nowhere right in front of you. Right? This is not going to happen. Our lives are simply, and without insult, ordinary. Yet... Just because our lives are ordinary, it does not mean that we are beneath God's notice or that we have nothing to contribute or offer to God as an act of worship. Last week, Brian introduced us to Ruth as we began studying the, the book named after her. Her father-in-law, Elimelech, he moved his family from Israel into the land of Moab in hopes of escaping famine. Elimelech and his two sons, they eventually pass away while in Moab, but his two sons do not pass away before they get married to two Moabite women. 
with nothing left in the land of Moab. And the news of food in Israel, Elimelech's wife, Naomi, decides to go home. And she releases her daughters-in-law from having to follow her around anymore. And she says, go home. Right, don't follow me anymore. Go home. One daughter-in-law, Orpah, decides to go home. There's nothing wrong with that. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, she decides to stay with her mother-in-law. And she returns with Naomi to Israel. And we see one of the most powerful statements of faith and loyalty and friendship from her when she says to Naomi that she will go with Naomi wherever she will go. She will die wherever Naomi dies. She'll be buried in the same place. Her people will be, uh, Naomi's people will be Ruth's people. And her, Naomi's God will be Ruth's God. Right? That's one of the most beautiful statements uh, of friendship, loyalty, and, and, um, and faithfulness that we've seen in the Bible thus far. And yet, as Naomi and Ruth enter into the land of Israel, we're all probably wondering, where is God in all of this? Right? There is some evidence that he's there. Brian brought that out for us. Right? But there's still that thought of, where is God in all of this? Right? We, we know that he's kind of working, in, that, that he is seemingly working in the lives of his people, but it's really hard to see because all we've seen thus far in the book of Ruth is misery and tragedy. But what we'll see this evening is that even when we cannot see, even though it's, it seems that life is just ordinary, all is still going according to God's plan. And we're going to observe how God orchestrates his sovereign will to accomplish his salvation plan for mankind through three examples of God's care through the ordinary. Three examples of God's care through the ordinary. The first example of God's care through the ordinary is God providentially directs Ruth to Boaz. God providentially directs Ruth to Boaz. Now, like we said... We left Ruth and Naomi last week on a bit of a cliffhanger. They've returned to the land of Israel safely. There's food in the land again, but what will become of them? What will happen next? Just because they returned to land doesn't necessarily mean that all of their problems gone, uh, went away. Right? Their situation didn't magically get any better. So let's see what God's doing. Verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. This is a really strange detail to start our story off of uh, here. It's an, it's an awkward transition because uh, we hear that Naomi and Ruth get back into Bethlehem and then all of a sudden this guy named Boaz shows up and we don't know who he is and what he's about. Right? We just, we're just told Naomi has a relative, a relative through her husband, a man of great wealth whose name was Boaz. Now, outside of that description, great uh, man of great wealth, we have no idea, we have no clue what the introduction of Boaz means for Ruth and Naomi. Now, remember, this story occurs in the time of the judges. And that people, they did whatever was right in their own eyes. There's no king to, to regulate things. So people did whatever was right uh, in their own eyes. So some people, they honored God. And they did what was right. They chose to follow the law. Other people, obviously, did not care about following after God. They didn't care necessarily about doing what was right. So the question remains with this ambiguous description of Boaz. What kind of man is he going to be? What kind of man is Boaz going to be? Because this, this description of him, a man of great wealth, another, uh, another way you could uh, translate that is a man of great stature. Right? The last man who was described with these particular words, a man of great stature, of great significance, was our friend Samson. Samson, as you remember, was kind of okay, right? but in general, he wasn't that good of a man. And so you see here, there's a description of Boaz as a man of great wealth, and you should be wondering, wait, that's the same words, a, great, a man of great stature. Is Boaz going to be like Samson? Is he going to be a halfway okay guy, but mostly bad? Or is he going to be a man who honors God? We don't know. 
Right? Okay, well, those of you who grew up in church, you know. But don't get ahead of me. Right? Um, we don't know, at least at this point, what kind of man he's going to be. Only time will tell, as no other details are given at this time. Verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Notice how the author identifies Ruth. He puts her nationality as the focus. And perhaps this is similar to you know, later on in 2 Samuel when Bathsheba's husband will always, almost always be identified as Uriah the Hittite. Right? His nationality is just, has become a part of his name. Um, perhaps that's it, but uh, that's, it's not certain whether that's the case. But what we do know is that her nationality continues to be a point of focus in this story at times. She, sometimes she's called Ruth. Sometimes she's called Ruth the Moabitess. Um, her nationality is something that does have some significance. Now, it would be easy to try and read prejudice into this description, but that might not necessarily be the case because Ruth is held in high regard in the scriptures. Uh, she's portrayed very positively. And yet, it's still kind of jarring, right, to have her nationality emphasized. It's like, you know, if, they, if uh, I was introduced as Roger, the Chinese, it's just like, what? Like, that's just strange. You don't do that. Um, but yet, here we go, Ruth, the Moabitess. And there's no real explanation for why her nationality is used at times and why it's not used. But um, as you see that, though, every time you see Ruth, the Moabitess, you have to remind yourself, she is a foreigner. She kind of doesn't belong, right? She's a foreigner. And that's what we want to uh, be reminded of. So uh, she's an alien. She's a stranger in a time when aliens and strangers were viewed as second-class citizens, even if they had a compelling story like Ruth did. Now, Ruth, she asked Naomi for permission to go to the field to glean. What is the significance of gleaning in our story? Well, in Leviticus 19, 9-10, and 23, 22, God tells the Israelites that when they are harvesting the land, when they bring in their crops, they're not to reap or gather every inch of their fields. They're supposed to leave some of the food uh, in the field. They're not supposed to basically uh, clean it out. They're supposed to leave some food behind so that the needy and the alien can gather these leftover grains to provide for their needs. So gleaning, it describes this action that, that God commands the Israelites to observe so that the needy can be cared for. Um, Deuteronomy 24, 19, it has a similar law to provide for those who are in need. Uh, you're not supposed to grab all the food. You're supposed to leave some behind. And it further describes those who are in need as the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Now, you know who Ruth is. You know, what, uh, you know her, her, her life situation. She qualifies as both alien and widow. So these landowners who are gathering the harvest, they were to be mindful of those who could not help themselves, who could not make their own income. And if they did that, if they were mindful of those who could not help themselves, God promised that he would bless them for their kindness. Now that sounds kind of weird, right? Because we're not a prosperity kind of church and the Israelites were not a prosperity kind of people. So why is it that God said that he will bless them if they remember those who are, uh, those who are helpless, those who need kindness? Why? Well, if you skip down just a few more verse, uh, verses in Deuteronomy 24, you'll see that God tells the landowners, you have to remember when you were slaves in Egypt, Right? Think back to the time when you were enslaved, when you were helpless, and I cared for you. Think back to that time, and in a similar way, now that you are free, now that you have the means to be able to care for others, you are to remember those who cannot help themselves. And so, that is the, the significance of gleaning. And, and um, we're not told necessarily why Naomi does not join Ruth in gleaning. Because I mean, as you notice, Ruth is the one saying, May I, uh, is the one saying um, let me, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. Right, so Ruth is the one taking the action, not Naomi. So we're just kind of like, oh, wait, 
why is Ruth the only one doing it? Because uh, under Israelite law, as long as you're a widow and you can't care for yourself, you are, you are free to go glean. So we don't know why Naomi doesn't join Ruth, but whatever the, that case is, Ruth is the one who goes. Right? She's the one who initiates. She alone goes to the field to gather food. And as you can see from the Bible's description of gleaning, where you're just basically picking up the leftovers of the field, gleaning is not really a career choice. You don't decide when, when, you're, done with, uh, when you're done with elementary school to say, I'm going to be a gleaner, and you just go out to the fields and, and grab, grab whatever and just eat like that. that. You can't do that. Gleaning is a life-sustaining action for those who are desperately in need. A modern-day equivalent would be if uh, you were on your own, you, you um, had no job, no unemployment benefits, you were living in a, uh, in a home and you didn't have to pay rent, but there was no money for food, so you have to go around on garbage day to the recycle bins and go grab bottles and cans and then go over to the recycle center to get uh, money to, to just to get your food, right? And imagine having to do that every single day. Right. This is not something that you, this is not a career choice. This is not something that you do in order to, to live. This is something that you do to survive. Right. And, and this is what, what Ruth is about to do. And, and it certainly seems strange to our ears that God would allow for her and Naomi to be reduced down to gleaning because we don't always perceive these mere survival tactics as a part of God's care, right? Because we, we're kind of conditioned to think, if God cares about them, he's going to do something about their situation. He's not going to let them get to the point where they have to basically just survive. And yet, that's what he does, right? That's what God allows in the moment. He allows it for a purpose. Interestingly enough, the narrator tells us that Ruth just so happens to come across the field which belongs to Boaz, and we don't really, we still don't have uh, any more information about Boaz, but we know, at least from a theological standpoint, that Ruth doesn't just stumble upon Boaz's field by chance, right? It's through God's providence that she comes to his field. God allows Ruth to find the very person who will be the key to moving God's plan forward, unbeknownst to everyone in the story but us. So the author, he intentionally uses this language of chance. Right? She happened to come upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz to get readers who know God to pause and realize there's no such thing as chance. Right? Sometimes we catch each other when we're, when we're uh, about to go do something, like you're about to go on a job interview or uh, you're, you're hoping to get Hamilton tickets or something like that, right? And you say to someone, hey, wish me luck. I mean, oh, sorry, no such thing as luck. Uh, God's providence, right? We'll, we will say something like that because we're just, you know, I have to be a proper Christian in front of the pastor or something like that, right? Or like I have to be a proper Christian in front of my friends. We know it's God's providence, right? But the author intentionally chooses to use this chance language to get you to think, was this by chance? Or was this actually the hand of God moving everything into place? Right? We know it's God's hand. And, but it's, it's still fun, right? It's still fun to, to, to actually get to pause and to think about it and just like, whoa, that's so cool. God is working in these itty-bitty little details to move his plan forward. It seemed like God no longer cared, but yet he still does. He's still there. He still cares. And in verse 4, again, we have chance language. But behold, Boaz, or no, now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Boaz returns to his field from his trip at just the right time to intersect with Ruth. And we can see that there's something different about him compared to how Israelite society was during the time of the judges. Because he comes in, right? He comes into his field. He greets his workers. He could just say, hi, how are you? Right? Or he could say, hello, or greetings. But he doesn't do that, right? He says, what does he say? He says, may the Lord, may Yahweh be with you. And they respond. He's established a culture within his workplace. And they respond in saying, may the Lord bless you. 
in a, t- in a time period where it was more typical of God's people to ignore God unless something went wrong. It's stunning to hear that these people would acknowledge God in the middle of their work. Right? May the Lord be with you. May the Lord bless you. Right? So we're, we're seeing that there's something a little different about Boaz and his workers. And uh, so that kind of gives us a little, little bit of hope, right? Because we're looking at this and we're like, oh, maybe he is one of those godly Israelites. Now in verse 5, as Boaz is settling in, looking at his field, looking at his workers, kind of seeing who's around. He notices Ruth in the distance, and he says to the, his servant who's in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Or he notices Ruth. He notices Ruth because as a guy who knows his workers, Ruth's presence among his workers wouldn't have gone unnoticed for long. She's new. Right? You can, you can kind of um, understand that. If someone new showed up at your workplace or at your, in your class, you would know who they are, right? Because they don't, they don't, um, uh, they don't blend in. They're, famil- they're not familiar, right? They stand out. And so because she's new, not because like, oh, it's love at first sight, but because she's new, he's like, hey, whose young woman is that? Right? I've never seen her before, right? So it's not necessarily love at first sight, as some might suggest, although perhaps it was. But as we will see later, the time frame of the events in the book are a little more spread out than we think. So this is probably not an instant connection. It is probably not love at first sight. However, Boaz still takes notice of Ruth. And his servant replies to his question and says, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. At the end of this chapter, or at the end of chapter 1, we had no idea what would come of Ruth. And here in chapter 2, God providentially leads Ruth to Boaz. And through these ordinary circumstances, God sets his plan into motion by bringing Ruth to Boaz's field and also having her capture his attention because she's new. Not only is she new, but she works really hard too. Right? She's been in there in the morning and she's been sitting in the house for a brief moment just as Boaz gets back to his field so that he can interact with her. And that is all God's providence. God sets his plan into motion through these ordinary circumstances and his plan's not done yet. There's going to be more. And that leads us to the second example of God's care through the ordinary, which is God paves the way for Boaz's kindness. God paves the way for Boaz's kindness. So because Ruth is taking a break, she's taking her quick 15, Boaz is able to go up to her and talk to her while she's resting. And he says to her, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do, no, do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. This is kind of strange, right? Boaz just comes out of nowhere and just talks to her. And he just says, he just calls her my daughter. That's really strange, right? But in a sense, we kind of know what that's like because, um, you know, when you were growing up and some stranger saw you, they knew your parents and you didn't know them, and they asked your parents, like, oh, who's this? Is this your child? And, and your parents were like, yeah, yeah, this is, my, this is my son, this is my daughter. And then you have these strangers coming up and you just say, oh, hi, sweetie, how are you? Right? It's just like, sweetie, I don't, I don't know you. Like, get away, right? That's a stranger danger. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of like, that's kind of what's going on. It's just like, my daughter. So this is not necessarily something that's indicating any kind of prior relationship between uh, Boaz and Ruth, but it's a term of endearment, right? And this also kind of suggests that Boaz is a little bit older than, than, uh, than Ruth. So this is, um, this is a, it's a term of endearment. Boaz is speaking kindly and gently towards Ruth, and he, he basically tells her, hey, stay here. Okay, don't, don't go to any, other, other, any of the other fields. Just stay here at this field, glean, and 
just, just take care of what you need to take care of, and you can work with my workers, with my female servants, and you know, if you need water, you don't have to go out of the field to get the water. Just stay here, grab from the servant's water jar. This is an incredibly kind offer from Boaz to Ruth, because up until this point, he hasn't even said, hi, my name is Boaz. Or he just says, hey, my daughter, stay here. It's so kind of him to do that. Um, and the reason why is because he understands that she's actually his relative, right? He knows she's his relative because he's heard her story, right? When, remember, when, when Naomi and Ruth come back into the city of Bethlehem, all the ladies in the town were saying like, hey, is that Naomi? Right? And they're all, they're, all, they're all chattering and they're all telling, telling each other, hey, Naomi's here, Naomi's here, Naomi's here. And they're hearing the story of Naomi, right? And they're also hearing Naomi's side of it too, where she's so bitter. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I went out full, but I returned empty. And she kind of forgot Ruth was there with her, but um, that's, that was her perspective. And, and this story was going to uh, spread throughout the city so that Boaz would hear this story eventually too. And so as Boaz hears this story, he knows who Ruth is. The moment he hears, this is that Moabite woman who, fought, who, who came back into the land with Naomi. He knows, oh, you're my family. Right? So this kindness that he offers her is not like the kindness of a creep who's like just trying to, like, uh, trying to impress this girl he's never met before, but it's a kindness of a family member who is realizing, hey, I have an obligation to you because you're family. I want to be kind to you. And so he's offering all these things to her even though she has no idea who he is. And, you know, he offers, he tells her to stay at his field because he also understands the danger that she might be in, right? She is a foreigner. She is a, from a people that are not really looked well upon by the Israelites. And so he says, hey, stay here so that no one will hurt you. This is for your well-being. Um, and, and, you know, Boaz's concern for her and his desire to be generous towards her is particularly seen in verse 9, um, when he says that she gets to work with his workers. Remember, she is supposed to be, a, 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 she, she is a widow and she's an alien. So she kind of comes in after all of the hired workers do their work to kind of pick up the leftovers. He's saying, no, you can basically act along with my paid workers to gather your grain. And not only that, but... Instead of having to go back out of the field to go fill up uh, your, your water container, you can just draw water from the, wa the water jar that my servants, my paid servants, get to draw water from. Right? This is incredibly kind and gracious of Boaz. He grants her privileges that's not normal for those who were poor and widowed um, uh, to, to have. He, give, he, he gives her more privileges. And his extraordinary kindness and generosity, they don't go unnoticed by Ruth. She's not like, oh, cool, thanks. She hears what Boaz is saying to her, and she, it says here, she fell on her face, verse 10, bowing to the ground. Think about this. Where have you seen this kind of language before? Right? Falling to your face, bowing to the ground. You're thinking about Moses, you're thinking about Abraham, right? You're thinking about these people who have had an encounter with God, falling on their face, bowing low, recognizing that the person in front of them is infinitely higher than they are, much more worthy than they are. This is a posture of worship normally, but in the presence of people, Right, so, so it's a posture of worship when it's done before God. But in the presence of people, it's done in humble recognition of one's unworthiness. Right, she understands that she does not deserve this kindness. And so she adopts this posture of, of, of in a sense, worship. But it's mostly humility. Uh, she adopts this posture of humility because she understands that she is a mere widow. She's just exercising the right accorded, afforded to her by the law just to collect food so she can survive. That's all she's doing. And she knows that she is a Moabitess among Israelites, and she understands their prejudice against her people right? because her people mistreated, uh, mistreated the Israelites when they were escaping uh, Egypt. So she understands 
she has no right to this kindness. And so as a result, when she hears these words from Boaz, she is astounded. Because that's not the reception she was expecting. Right? If she went to any other field, this is not the, re- the reception she gets. And so she is astounded and she asks him, why? Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And in response to her question, Boaz tells her what he's heard, what he's learned. He says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Because he knows Ruth's family, Boaz is showing her this kindness. It's kind of weird that he doesn't tell her that they're related, but whatever, he doesn't tell her. But he wants her to know it's because of your kindness, it's because of your faith that I want to care for you. And he's also giving her a little bit of instruction about Yahweh too, about, about God. As we saw in his initial greeting of his servants, Boaz, he demonstrates his faith in God as he is praying a prayer of blessing for Ruth. He says, he says uh, verse 12, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord. Who's the Lord? The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Boaz is demonstrating the depth of his relationship with God. He's not like one of those Israelites who claimed to be a follower of God just because he was born in an Israelite home. Um, Boaz has his own active faith in God. And so he's praying, he's praying that God would reward her, that he would care for her. And he's reminding Ruth, this is not the generic name for God, Elohim, not to be confused with your, uh, with your foreign gods. This is Yahweh. Right? This is the personal God of Israel, the I Am, the very name of God that was, was revealed to Moses. And so he's letting Ruth know, make no mistake, this is Yahweh, not some other God who has cared for you, who has brought you thus far, who has taken you in and offered you refuge and shelter. Right? This is the God who has brought you into the Israelite community. Right? So in a sense... What we see is that when Ruth rejected her people's gods and rejected her family and she chose to cling to Naomi and to cling to Yahweh, to cling to Israel, Ruth mirrors Abraham. She mirrors Abraham who also left his people, left his family, left his gods behind in faith to follow after Yahweh. And Boaz is reminding Ruth of the similarity of Yahweh's protection and shelter. And he's helping her see that Yahweh will surely take care of her in these uncertain times. He's not indifferent, but cares for all people who place their faith in him. By believing in Yahweh, Ruth has received the protection from the God of Israel who will, like a protective mother bird, protect his people. Now, Boaz allows for Ruth to go back to work. And even after he allows for her to go back to work, when it's lunchtime, Boaz continues to go above and beyond what is expected of him as he welcomes her to his table for lunch along with his hired servants. And he provides her with a ton of food. He gives her bread, allows her to dip it in the, in the vinegar, uh, and, and then also he gives her a bunch of roasted grain. Um, and she ate so much that that she was satisfied, but she even had leftovers. So he provides her with a ton of food. And, this is, and you know, she's a widow. She is an alien. She's not afforded these rights. She's not welcome normally at the table of the, the field owner. But yet, he welcomes her in. And he feeds her, feeds her a lot. And not only that, but he tells his, his reapers in verses 15 to 17 that, hey, you know how the widows and the... Um, and the aliens are, are supposed to kind of keep a distance and, and reap after you, don't do that. Why don't you let her just come right after you? Don't bother her. Just let her follow you directly. Don't push her back. Don't call her names as she's following closely. Just let her follow, follow you right after you. And, uh, oh, by the way, just you know, drop, some, drop some grain 
by accident and just, you know, let her, let her grab it, right? Boom. Um, right? They're supposed to let her have more than she would normally get. And uh, when, when Ruth recognizes the kindness of Boaz, when she recognizes the kindness of Boaz, she understands that these words that he's, uh, that he's giving her, these words are a comfort. Um, and and she, he's spoken kindly to her, even though she's not one of his hired servants, right? Verse 13. And, you know, when she recognizes his kindness, she has no idea that he's going to do even more, right? that he's going to purposefully give her more food. And so he increases the kindness. Like if you thought his kindness was already above and beyond what is normal, he goes even further. And some will point to Boaz's actions and say, well, of course he's going to do this. Of course he's going to be kind. He likes her. Right? So why wouldn't he be more kind to her? And, you know, I, I just want to, you know, let's, let's pull over just a little bit. Let's stop the car on the side of the road, and let's talk about this. Sometimes, especially with a book like Ruth, when we're very familiar with the story, and it's easy for us to kind of get ahead of ourselves and to read stuff into it, right? You look at this, and you're like, yeah, of course. Right? Oops, here's more grain for you. <laughs> I like you. Um, <laughs> Right? It's, it's so easy to read that into the story, but that's not technically what's going on. Right? It, but we're, we're quick to get there because we, we're so familiar with it. Right? And I don't know how many of you are, are thinking about the VeggieTales version of this story, or perhaps uh, even if, if you grew up with this, the Adventures in Odyssey, dramatic uh, radio retelling of this story. Those things kind of shape our, our perception of what's going on in the story. And sometimes that's just drama. That's not necessarily what's in the text. Right? So um, we can kind of get ahead of ourselves and kind of read details back into the text. And, and the question that we have to be asked is, does Boaz like Ruth in a romantic way at this point? Is his kindness a sanctified smokescreen of interest, just like some Christian guys who are like, oh, here, let me get the door for you. Or, hey, let me walk you to your car. Um, Hey, is that, is that too heavy for you? Let me carry that for you. Right? Is it a sanctified smokescreen to uh, express interest? Maybe. Maybe not. Right? We don't know. The author of Ruth doesn't explicitly say. And so we have to be careful about how we tell this story. Because as you'll see later, I think there's good reason to believe that Boaz is simply a God-fearing man who desires to be abundantly kind to Ruth in this moment. And there are no ulterior motives here, which is sometimes also the case when it comes to guys and girls here in the church. But that's not the point. Moving on. Um, Even if Boaz does have romantic feelings for Ruth at this point, he is not being kind to her to get her attention. He recognizes what she has done for her mother-in-law, his relative, and desires to show her the kindness of God. All God has done up to this point, allowing for the women of the town to take notice of Naomi when she returns. Because Naomi could have just came in and they're just like, who's that? I don't know. Who cares? Right. They recognized her and they started saying, oh, is that Naomi? Right. That God allowed for them to be there, to pay attention to that, to recognize who she is. Right. Allowing for that story of Naomi and Ruth to spread throughout the town. That's from God. Boaz being, one, being, uh, being present to hear that story and to know those details, right? That's from God. Boaz returning to his field at the same time that Ruth is taking a break after working all morning, right? That is all God. That is all God. And it paves the way, right? Everything that God has done has paved the way for Boaz to show this kindness to Ruth and, um, by extension, Naomi. We didn't know, right at the end of chapter one, we didn't know how God was going to provide for these two widows in their return to Israel. You remember, this is a patriarchal society. It's a man-centered society. There's, there were no jobs, really, for the ladies. Be, by being widows, they couldn't just go open up a business or go find employment uh, and, and take care of themselves. Right? And so they were in a really tough spot. That's why, they were, that's why they were allowed to basically scavenge to survive. And so we, just like they, 
may have doubted that God was presently active in the lives of his people. But now, now we see that God, he was. Or he was active. He's moving things along. These chance circumstances were not chance, but were sovereignly ordained by God so that in the right moment, in the right moment, with the right people, it, at the right time, the plan begins to unfold. Right? It's slowly unfolding. Think about it to your situations, to your lives. As we go through our day-to-day tasks, it's easy for us to forget that God is with us. It's easy to forget that God is presently acting even in the most ordinary things that we do. When, when you're doing your work, when you're doing your job, when you're in class, you don't really think about God, do you? And when you're sitting in lecture, I'm pretty sure you're not thinking, wonder what God is teaching me because, well, unless you're in a Bible class, because, like, what does finances have to do with the kingdom of God? What does biology have to do with the kingdom of God? When you are sitting at your desk doing whatever, uh, you, do, doing whatever you do for, for a living, you're not thinking, you know what? I got to fill out this paperwork because this is going to advance the kingdom of God. You, know, you don't think that. I don't think anyone thinks that. Um, it's so easy to forget that God can use some of these ordinary circumstances to advance his plan. But we're reminded through Boaz's example that sometimes the things that we might do with each other, with uh, one another or for one another, uh, whether they're ordinary acts of kindness or even you know, above and beyond acts of kindness, uh, it stems from the, the realization that God is always at work. Right? When, we show, when we show kindness, when we, when we take that time to, when you see that coworker who's usually pretty chipper, not doing too hot, and you're saying, hey, what's up? You doing okay? Right? Even that kind of act of kindness could be something that could lead to a gospel conversation. God's always at work, even in your mundane, even in the normal. If we've been saved by him, if we truly love him, then we will love other people and we'll have our eyes up to see who we can minister to, even if it's just an ordinary act of kindness. When we find ourselves wondering if God hears us when we pray, if he cares about us when we're hurting, then we're reminded from Naomi and Ruth's story that God is keenly aware of everything that is going on. His characteristics of being all-knowing and everywhere present doesn't stop working all of a sudden when people need him. He's not only omniscient and omnipresent when it's most convenient for him. It's all the time. Everything is moving towards God's ultimate plans for us at all times, which is why, brothers and sisters, we do have to be mindful of the way that we conduct ourselves at all times. God doesn't always intervene in a miraculous way but he never stops loving us. And at times, he allows for these painful moments to come into our lives to help us realize that what we need most is not necessarily his direct intervention in our lives. That would be nice though, wouldn't it? But sometimes he's saying, no, you don't need my direct intervention. What you need is to trust in me. And so I'm going to allow for you to hurt just a little bit so that you understand that your hope isn't in me coming to save the day. Your hope isn't necessarily in me magically making everything better. But your hope is found in me alone. And so you trust in me. I'll take care of you. I'll prove it to you. I'll show you it but it's going to have to hurt a little bit. And that's a challenging reminder for us, isn't it? That God sometimes allows for these moments of pain to help us realize that what we need most, what we desperately need is him. And that challenging reminder leads us to the third example of God's care through the ordinary, which is God provides hope for Naomi. God provides hope for Naomi. In verses 17 to 18, 
we see the end results of Boaz's kindness to Ruth for that day. Ruth has gleaned in Boaz's field from morning to evening, and when she finally gets rid of all the husks around the barley, she ends up with an ephah of barley. As with all ancient measurements, there's an element of uncertainty when it comes to what that translates to in today's standards because standardization of weights was a little iffy. It fluctuated at times. Um, But that being said, Ruth took home anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds of barley. Now, it might not seem much to you because you can go to Costco and get a 50-pound bag of rice and just leave within like five minutes. But 50 pounds of barley, she worked for that all day. She worked for that all day. And according to uh, an old Babylonian record, she's probably collected at least a half month's wages, if that's the lower end of it, in one day. And that's how much she collected, a half month's wages. Uh, men in Babylonian times, when they were working, they would probably get a pound or, or two in one day. Right? So the fact that she gets to carry home 30 to 50 pounds, like that's incredible. That's unheard of. Right? And just extrapolate that out for the entire harvest, is, uh, harvest season. How, how much is God providing for Ruth and for Naomi? Right? That's incredible. So when Ruth comes home, and you know, also she is so strong. Right? She's worked all day. She's been on her feet all day. And she, beats, she has to beat the, bar, the, the barley grains out of the husk, right? And then she has to put it in a bag, and then she has to walk home, 50 pounds, you know, walking home. You, you know, you've carried a sack of rice. You know that unless, uh, unless it's nice and tight, it's going to spread all over the place. It's really hard to, um, to, to carry it, and, and, you know, it's difficult. So this girl's strong. Um, and so she goes home. She brings this, this big sack. She drops it, or maybe she doesn't drop it, but she, you know, she brings it home, and she's like, hey, look, look what I got. You know, Naomi's just sitting at home. like, whoa, what is that? Right? And uh, not only that, but she's like, oh, not only is this what I collected, but here are my leftovers from lunch. Naomi's like, lunch? I, I know we don't have any food at home. You didn't have any lunch when you left. Where did you get lunch from? Right? And so... Um, she sees this abundance and she is taken aback. And Naomi is taken aback, understandably so. Remember where Naomi is at uh, before this, right? Mentally, emotionally, spiritually. When she returned from the land of Moab, she was a mess, right? She was very, very bitter. She was so bitter, she said, hey, don't call me Naomi anymore, right? Because that name means pleasant. So don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, right? Call me bitter, so if you, know any name, if you know anyone named Mara, you can go call them bitter. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, you know, she was so bitter. She's just like, just call me bitter. Just call me bitter. That's how bitter I am. Just call me bitter. And even though she was a widow, even though she could take advantage of gleaning like Ruth did, she stayed at home inexplicably. Why was she staying at home? It could be that she was too old. It could be. Um, it could also be that she was just, she was so defeated she couldn't move. Right? She was so depressed that she just wanted to stay home. She didn't want to do anything else. Right? That's very possible too. The, the text doesn't say, so we're not going to say it's one or the other. Right? But Naomi's staying home. We already know that, her, at least in terms of just how she's looking at God, how she's looking at her life situation, she is incredibly bitter, which is why she renamed herself. So she's not in a good spot. She's angry at God. She claimed back in chapter one that God has dealt very bitterly with her, that she left Israel full and she returns to Israel empty. And there's no signs whatsoever that she's repented of her bitterness and her anger towards God. There are no signs that she understood her situation according to what God's doing. There's no signs that she even had hope that God was doing something. And yet here, God graciously lifts her up gently by the chin and says, hey, pay attention. I'm taking care of you. I'm here. Naturally, in verse 19, as she's looking at all this, Naomi asks Ruth, where did you glean today? Or where did you work? And before she even gets an answer, before she even gets an answer from Ruth, she says, May he who took notice of you be blessed. She understands at this point, whoever this was that was so kind to you, right, he deserves God's blessing. 
He deserves God's blessing. She finally understands. She finally remembers. Oh yeah, God's here. God's here. And Ruth, she notes, hey, I worked with a man named Boaz today. I was in his field. And Naomi, light bulb on, immediately responds with a pronouncement of blessing again. Right? Naomi, who was once so bitter that she wanted to be, just be known as bitter, she proclaims a blessing from Yahweh upon Boaz and says, may he be blessed of Yahweh who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. For whatever reason, Boaz hasn't met up with Naomi since, he re- since, since she returned home. He's heard of, what, uh, of her return and what Ruth has done, but he hasn't had a chance to visit her. And since he hasn't had a chance to visit, he demonstrates his kindness and his goodness to Naomi by caring for them with this food. And yes, he's shown kindness to Ruth and Naomi, but he's also, sh- uh, to th- those who are living, but he's also shown kindness to the dead in the sense that he remembers, he remembers his relative Elimelech. He remembers his relative Malon. And so by showing kindness to Naomi and Ruth, he's showing honor to those dead husbands, right? Recognizing like, hey, they're your family, they're my family. I'm gonna take care of them. That's what he does. So um, while Naomi is abundantly elated to hear that that Boaz uh, has not forgotten his relatives, she realizes that Ruth doesn't understand why she's so excited. And so she tells him, oh, Boaz, he's one of our close, uh, closest relatives. Now that word translated close closest relative. It's a significant word that Naomi chooses to use. Um, It is the appropriate term to use, but it is loaded with significance. This word for closest relative is the Hebrew word goel, which can also be translated as kinsman redeemer. Uh, There are multiple functions of a goel. One of them is like, you know, if uh, someone kills your family, the goel goes after the person who killed your your family member, and, they, and you go after blood, and you go kill them. Right? It's kind of like Romeo and Juliet a little bit. Um, that's, that's one function of the kinsman redeemer. That's not what's happening here. Right? So the, the, the function of a, the, a goel that is most appropriate to our situation is, um, is the closest relative, his responsibility is to repurchase property that was once owned by clan members that was sold or given up uh, in times of financial necessity. Um, why is that important? Or why is it important to go repurchase the land that was sold because, hey, we needed money, so we sold the land? Why is that so important? Well, back in Numbers 26, 53 to 55, when God was portioning out the land of Canaan to Moses and to the Israelites, he gave um, Moses these instructions, and he said, this is your inheritance, Right, this is how you take a part in, in my people and how you take a part in me. This is the inheritance that God promised Abraham's descendants back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And it was the inheritance that God delivered to his people. Um, and, and this is the reason why he brought them out of Egypt. Right? He brought them out of Egypt because he said, hey, you need to go home. I gave you this land. This is yours. You need to take it. And so this is theirs. And this is... But by taking the land, by being a part of the land, by making sure that they don't give up the portion of land that has been given to their family, they are essentially saying, I am a part of the people of God, and I am a part of God. I am identifying with God's people and with him. That's, land was so significant in Israelite life because it demonstrated how tightly you were, with, uh, you, you were associated with God and with God's people. Right? So if you were, and, and that's why, even if you sold land and you didn't have a goel to come in and repurchase the land for you, every 50 years in the, in the time of Jubilee, you get your land back. Right? The, the people who bought the land were supposed to give it back so that you could have your portion. That's why inheritance was such a big deal um, back in Israelite times. So God understood God understood that there would be times, like the times which drove Elimelech and his family from their property, that would require a family to actually give up their inheritance in order to pay their debts. And so that's why he provided in Leviticus 25.25 this option where the kinsman, the nearest kinsman, could come and buy back 
what was sold so that his relative would not be permanently cut off from Israel, cut off from God. Of course, it's symbolic, but it's still like the, the thing is there. You don't want your family to be cut off. You want to have your family continually before the presence of God in that way. So, you know, there were other provisions for caring for those who were not able to redeem their property so that they wouldn't lose their part in the, the nation and God. But if one had a, a kinsman redeemer who could repurchase the land, that is the, the means by which God shows his kindness to those who need help. Now, reacquiring the land is not, again, about the land itself, but what the land symbolizes. A part of the people of God, that we're a part of the people of God, that we're with God himself, we are receiving what was promised to Abraham. Now, Naomi does not suggest that Boaz's status as a goel, that part of his duty as a kinsman redeemer um, is, is marriage. Does not suggest that. She doesn't even suggest that it's his responsibility to repurchase the land for them. But she says, says he is one of those kinsmen redeemers. He's one of those closest relatives. Right? So she understands, though, that Ruth coming to Boaz's field, Boaz's great acts of kindness towards them. This is all God's kindness. And so where, where Naomi once thought that she had nothing left after God had dealt bitterly with her, now she sees that God hasn't left her with nothing. Right? She does have Ruth, but she has close relatives of her husband who understands, at least one, who understands his duty to care for family. So upon hearing that Boaz is one of their closest relatives, Ruth tells Naomi that Boaz has, has told her that she is to remain close with his servants until the end of the harvest. So Boaz's kindness, it's not just a one-day act, but it's a continual act that he will continue to demonstrate towards Ruth. And Naomi assures Ruth, hey, that's a good offer. It's a good offer. Take it. Um, You'll be safe there. No one's going to discriminate against you. No one's going to hurt you. And so in verse 23, with her mother-in-law's permission and approval, Ruth stays close to Boaz's maids. And um, the author explains here that uh, he lets her stay with her through the end of the... So they got there at the beginning of the barley harvest. So she gets to stay all the way through the end of the barley harvest and through the wheat harvest. And that's about a period of six to seven weeks. She stays with them for that long, right? And um, that's incredible generosity on Boaz's part, right? Because that's profit for him. Right? That's profit for him. He lets her come and, and um, provides for her in that way. And, well, within these six and seven weeks, there's no indication that he's interested in, in marrying her at all. And right? so that's, that's why with these six to seven weeks, it's, like, it's not just like, hey, you're new here. Can I marry you? Right? No, it's not that. Um, There's a long delay. We don't even know within these six to seven weeks whether there's any interaction between them or not. All we know is that Boaz is incredibly kind to to Ruth. And, um, you know, when we think about it, up until the point where Ruth returns home from gleaning, Naomi has faded from our attention. She's not in the narrative. She comes back into the narrative because what we see is as God is setting things up, as he's revealing more of what he's about to do, Right? Hope is building. It's growing. Where it was just once darkness, you have the slow growing of the light, the slow growing of the hope that comes from God. And even though it felt like God had dealt bitterly with Naomi for no reason and left her with nothing, her pain wasn't in vain. Right? Naomi was not left alone. Her God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, still cared for her. When we're tempted... When you and I are tempted to believe, like Naomi, that God has abandoned us and he's left us with nothing but our pain, we have to fight to remember that God never does anything senselessly. That was the cry of Habakkuk when he was looking at all of the pain that Israel had endured. And he's like, why are you doing this? This is senseless. It doesn't make sense. And God says, hey, I'm doing something. Trust me. And we're reminded of that here too. We have to fight to remember that God never does anything senselessly. He is in control. He is working in our lives, in the details of our lives. 
in the, in the lives of the people around us too to reveal more of his glorious plan to save sinners through these circumstances. We might fail, like Naomi, to properly acknowledge God during these times of pain and sorrow. But what we're reminded of when we see these small instances of God's care for us is that we can have hope. We can rejoice just as Naomi did because we remember through these small acts that God has not forgotten. We close our time tonight on yet another cliffhanger. Those of us who know the story, we're not worried. We know what's going to happen. We know that God's going to take care of Ruth and Naomi in the end. But put yourself in Ruth's shoes. Put yourself in her situation. Boaz, a close relative, has appeared, and it seems like he might be the key to at least providing general care for Ruth and Naomi. But now that the harvests are over, right, now that barley and wheat harvests are over, what's going to happen? How are they going to be provided for? What's going to happen next? Right, we're going to have to wait for next week and then two weeks after that to get the answers for those questions. But what we saw this evening, what we've seen this evening is that where the outlook was once very bleak, now hope is on the horizon. God didn't do anything really flashy to deliver this hope to Ruth or Naomi, but he sovereignly worked in their lives so that they could understand that he has not abandoned them. And he did that through directing Ruth to Boaz's field, right? She just so happened to come upon his field, right? He paved the way for Boaz to act kindly to his family. And he also provided Naomi, who was once with that hope, trapped in her bitterness, an escape, hope. All of this happens seemingly by chance. But we understand that chance has nothing to do with it. The God of all creation is in sovereign control of all things. And yes, he lets us make our own choices. And yes, he lets us make our own mistakes. And he allows for us to face the consequences of those mistakes. But, this is cool, he is so strong he is so powerful that even when you do make mistakes, even when you do step in it, even when you do mess everything up, he is so strong that no matter what you do, you cannot derail his plans. Isn't that cool? That's how strong he is. That is how strong he is. And that is so cool, so encouraging, so powerful because of what that means, brothers and sisters, is that no matter what you do, no matter how badly you sin, you cannot outsin the mercy of God. You cannot outsin the grace of God. You cannot outsin his kindness. Right? Isn't that so cool? He's not surprised by anything we do but he uses everything that occurs in our lives to bring himself glory. That's how strong your God is, brothers and sisters. So the next time when we find ourselves wondering whether God cares about us in our circumstances, when we can't see, when we feel like it's hopeless, I pray that you or your friends would help you remember God's sovereignty. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He has not ceased to hear you. You are exactly where he wants you to be. So even if you can't help but ask the question of why, God, don't forget to also ask the question, how do you want me to respond to this? How can I bring you glory even when I can't see? Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for your word and how your word shows us your abundant loving kindness, your grace and your mercy and how you use all these little details in our lives, things that we overlook, things that we don't think are significant to advance your plan. We're so grateful that you would do this for us. And so we pray, Lord, that as we continue to grow in our knowledge of you, as we continue to grow in our love for you, that you would give us eyes of faith 
that even if we might forget because of the severity of our circumstances, your kindness, that when we do turn to your word, when we do pray, you would, we, we pray that you would bring these things to our remembrance so that even if we are in deep pain, we can remember that you've not left, that you still hear us, we can still trust in you. We pray, Father, that as we reflect on uh, this message and as we uh, move on to fellowship time as well, that, uh, Lord, you would, um, you would allow for these truths to, to take root in our lives and, and uh, allow for us just to have um, just a, a great time of, uh, of fellowship over, over the thoughts of your great provision and your great kindness. Uh, glorify yourself in our conversations, we pray. In your son's name, amen.